0: This is the sharp end podcast, a podcast aimed to minimize future incidents by way of storytelling. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine club and sponsored by Mammut, protecting you while protecting the environment. Mahmood is not only focused on integrating leading safety technology into every product. So you can confidently push your boundaries, but also committed to continuing to preserve what is worth preserving and to improve what is not yet perfect. This month's Mammut safety highlights are the Carbon Probe 280 Fast Lock and the Alligator Light Shovel. These two safety items are designed to be the best choice for the worst case. Mammut does the work on their end, so you can hashtag confidently go. Light bend resistant and reliable, the Carbon Probe 280 Fast Lock features a specially developed fast lock system for quick and effective operation. The Alligator Light is Mammut's lightest avalanche shovel. It weighs less than a small cola and can fit in any small day pack. The sharp end tilt proof blade is made of ultra robust anodized aluminum, while the attachment holes mean it is easier and faster to construct a snow anchor or rescue sled. We'll be giving away these two items this month, so stay tuned to find out how you can win this giveaway. Thank you to the Colorado Outward Bound School and Suntō for the additional support. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with two incredible women, Margie Root and Leslie Gaines Jermaine, who had an interesting experience on Hallett Peak in Rocky Mountain National Park, which is in the beautiful state of Colorado. So sit back and please
1: enjoy the 46th episode of the Sharpen Podcast. My name is Margie Root. I'm an engineer at a national lab um, in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Um, And uh, I do a lot of things, um, but I think the coolest thing that I do is um, I work part-time as an operations engineer for one of the instruments on the Curiosity rover that's on Mars right now. Um, So that's that.
0: What does that do?
1: Um, Well, the instrument, um, it has a laser um, and we point it at different rocks on the surface of Mars and cause, um, we shoot the laser at them and that causes the rocks to ablate. Um, And when they de-excite, they release characteristic light of the different um, elements that are in the rocks. Um, And we look at that with the spectrometer and we can tell what they're made out of. So that's part of my job is helping run that laser. I don't actually look at the data, but I look at the, I help the laser run.
0: Wow. That's super amazing. There's a world out there, people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, And Leslie, welcome to the show. What do you do, Leslie?
2: Thank you. Um, My name's Leslie gaines Germain. I currently live in Bozeman, Montana, but I just recently moved here as of about two weeks ago. um, I moved from Los Alamos, New Mexico. I was living there um, alongside Margie. And I work for an environmental consulting company. we mainly do environmental modeling of waste sites, so radioactive waste sites or chemical waste sites, and we um, evaluate the effects of contaminants on humans and the environment. Interesting.
0: You both have really fascinating jobs.
2: That's
1: Los Alamos. <laughs> uh,
0: and then, uh, and then you both um, have a love for climbing too.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've been climbing for about 10 years um, and started in New Mexico, started trad climbing in the Sandia Mountains here in New Mexico, um, and then it, my love just grew, and I've, I've traveled all over the world climbing now. And what about you, Leslie?
2: I've also been climbing for about 10 years. Um, I started climbing in college and loved it and just kept going with the sport and have also climbed all over the West. Um. Cool.
0: So you, you both weren't, you weren't climbing together as a pair, um, during this particular accident, right? But you're both climbing in the same climbing area. Yeah. We were both on Hallett that day. Hallett Peak in Rocky Mountain National Park.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. That's a striking buttress. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Hiking up, I was blown away by how pretty it is.
0: And what were you climbing?
1: Um, I was climbing um, uh, Colt Bossier, which is a 5.8. Oh,
0: that's the classic.
1: The classic, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Have, you, have you climbed it before or was that the first, the first time?
1: That was my first time on Colt Bossier. Um, my, um, our, one of our friends who um, was also there that day had climbed it twice. Um, and so we were trying to avoid him having to climb it a third time um, in our partnering up schemes. Um, and, um, I'd always wanted to climb it. So, um, I climbed out with my husband that day.
0: Okay. How many people were in your party?
1: Seven. Um, okay. so, um, yeah, it started out with five. Um, and then, so it's originally me, Leslie, George, and our friend Jamie, um, and then my husband, Travis. Um, and then we uh, stayed the night at our friend with our friends Kalita and Ryan, and they decided they wanted to join us in Rocky Mountain as well. Okay. So yeah, it was like three different parties. So two parties of two and one party of three on Hallett that day.
0: Okay. And then so you and your husband decided to climb Colt Basier. And then what did yeah. Leslie, what, what did you decide to climb?
2: So we had originally planned to climb the Hesse Ferguson route. But uh, we did the first pitch of that route and we looked up at the big roof. There's a big intimidating roof um, and we decided to do the love route instead. And so we did the first three pitches of the love route and then got on Englishman's, which is sort of this crack in the middle to upper part of the buttress that leans to the right And then we actually ended up rejoining the Hesse-Ferguson. So we did a little bit of a kind of Frankenstein mishmash of the routes.
0: Nice. Okay, so you're all at the base of the climb of Hallett Peak. And then Margie, why don't you
1: start with the story from here? Sounds good. Yeah, so um, we got to the base at around 7 in the morning. um, And we it's an easy hike. It's like three miles to get there. Um, and there's a little snow um, section right at the top that we had to cross a little snowfield at the base. What time, of, what time of year was this? Um, it was the beginning of July, 4th of July weekend. And so um, we climbed up the small snowfield, got to the base of the route. There was already a party on um, Colt Bossier. So Travis and I waited a little bit um, and then um, started up and, um the first pitch wasn't too bad. Um I stayed on route, had no problems, and uh really didn't have any issues at all um going up until the top of the third pitch. And um so the third pitch felt run out to me. Um, but I was comfortable with the climbing um on the third pitch um and uh didn't feel like I was at any danger of falling or anything. Um, but my husband was pretty freaked out. He had he's um recovering from a shoulder injury from a bike crash so he hasn't been climbing a lot and he just was unaccustomed to the exposure um and the exposure on the third route start, third pitch started to really get to him um but we talked about going down or going up um we only had a single rope um and so um it just seemed easier to finish the route um than to lose gear on the descent um and so we decided to keep going um, and so the fourth pitch is just kind of a traverse, um, an easy one. And we had some lunch there, calmed down, um, after he was a little bit stressed on the third pitch. And then I started up the fifth pitch, which I'm pretty sure I was on route there too. And, um, so then on the sixth pitch, um, I was in a pretty obvious, um, crack for a little while. Um, and then I wasn't really sure where to go after that. Um, And, uh, everyone says to go right. Um, but looking right, there was no gear and it looked easy enough, but I was scared of getting run out super far with no gear at all and not really sure where I was going. I didn't want to end up completely off route with no gear below me. (laughs) Um, so (laughs) Nobody does. <laughs> yeah. So there was a kind Except of... Except for Alex Honnold. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I was kind of going a little bit to the left and um, there was a nice crack and I found a piton and I was like, ah, sweet. Cause I had, I really didn't have much gear on that pitch and I had placed kind of a crummy nut below the piton. And and so I felt a little bit more security when I clipped the piton, which in retrospect was not good for me. Um, and then I got up a, a above the piton and I was kind of trying to move right cause I knew I needed to move right. Um, and um, so I was kind of looking up, trying to find a place for gear. Um, and I reached up and grabbed what looked like a bomber jug and it just kind of dissolved. Um, it, it just kind of dissolved in my hand and I wasn't even really thinking about it. I was kind of like looking to the next place to go. And then I was like, oh shoot, I'm falling um, because the jug had br- just crumbled. Um, and so I fell backwards and I don't, I think it was because the route is a little low angle. I got flipped upside down. So it was like a back dive off the ledge that I was on. (laughs) It was so scary. Um, I I was like, I'm falling and I know I have this piton below me, so I'm just going to wait for the catch of the piton. And I felt a little bit of a catch. And then apparently the piton ripped out, um, and then I kept falling, um, and then my crummy nut ripped out too. Um, And so in total above my first good piece, I was about 35, 40 feet out by the time it got to my first really good piece because it was run out with crummy gear. Um, And so my first really good piece was either a 0.4 or a 0.5 Camelot. Um, I'm missing a 0.4 Camelot. So I think that's still on the wall and probably someone took it by now, but I think that's what finally caught me was this 0.4 Camelot. And so Travis had told me I was at halfway around the, like, just before I fell on the rope. And by the time I stopped, I was about 20 feet above him. Um, so we think I fell 70 to 80 feet because it was a 70 meter rope. Um, so fell a really long way. Um, that's a fall. Yeah,
0: that's a quite the, di- I mean, you could have some pretty clear, long, drawn out thoughts during that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I had enough time to realize that Travis was screaming. Um, and I could occasionally glimpse his face. Um, and it was just horror, like complete horror at what was happening. And I was like, I think I'm dying now. Um, so I was kind of relaxed and bouncing down. Um, unfortunately, like unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know whether it's which one it is, but I was conscious the whole time. Um, and I knew I like hit a bunch of stuff, um, but I didn't really feel any of it. Like, I don't remember pain as part of it. I just remember complete, like uh, just weightlessness and it going on for so long. Um, and then I finally stopped and, um, I stood up and I was like, wow, I'm standing. I'm, I'm okay. And I looked at Travis and he was like screaming, like completely horrified. And then I started to scream just like relief and like horror at what had just happened. Um, and crying, and worked my way over to Travis, um, who was so scared. Well, Um, he
0: watched his partner the love of his life, like, I mean, he probably had no idea what was going to happen, and seeing you fall probably was crushing for him.
1: Yeah, he said he thought he was going to be pulling in his dead wife, Um, so it was really, really hard on him. Um, and I was okay. And so, um, I was like, well, I need to get to you. So he like lowered me and brought me over to him. And I kind of did like a head to toe on myself, like, okay, what's, what's wrong. And I felt that my helmet was like flat <laughs> against my head. And I was like, well, that's not good. Um, on
0: the top or on the side?
1: On the, it was like the front, like right over, like my frontal lobe. Um, what it was your like personality
0: is? Oh. <laughs> yeah.
1: Where my personality is. Um, And so that was smashed flat. Um, and then honestly, the first thing that hurt really bad was my ankle. Um, my left ankle was like sprained. Um, I thought it was broken. It hurt pretty bad. Um, and then I had blood all over my arm. Um, and I didn't notice for a little while until I like pushed off the wall a little that my wrist was definitely broken. Like I had no question that my wrist was broken. Um, and, and so and was that because, kind of
0: was it was it like angled or was it deformed or what how did how did you know your wrist was broken?
1: Uh, no, and I because I touched it, um I, I moved it a little bit and it was like excruciating pain, like blinding okay. pain. And I was like, oh, okay, well that's broken. Um but it didn't look wrong. Um I was a little worried that my elbow maybe had a compound fracture or something, but I didn't really want to look. <laughs> so um, I left that there <laughs> and uh, and So Travis and I like calmed each other down. We like um, cried a little bit, held each other for a while. And then we were like, well, we have to get down. Um, After I had finally talked my own brain out of, you need to finish the climb. Clearly you're not finishing the climb. You have to go down. (laughs) And so um, we started making a plan and basically the plan was just to use all the gear. So I gave him all the gear, um, we had already a pretty good anchor. And so, um, we had a single rope. So Travis is going to rappel down until he found a good anchor spot, build an anchor. And then I was going to rappel down to him. And I swore up and down that I was okay to rappel by myself, which in retrospect, um, maybe listening to me (laughs) and uh, tell him that I was okay. wasn't the best thing. Um, but he started rappelling down and as he was rappelling down, I noticed, um, my double ropes coming down from above. Um, I had loaned my double ropes to um, Leslie and Jamie and Ryan who were climbing one of the other routes that day because they were, they were a party of three. Um, so they had my double ropes and I saw them being lowered onto me and I was like, oh my gosh, this must mean that our friends heard us falling um, and that somebody's coming. And so I yelled down to Travis to build an anchor and wait. Um, and he did. And then, George and um, Leslie showed up. And I'm,
2: I'm actually going to let Leslie keep going on this. Thanks, Margie. I'm going to back up a little bit here and go back to the start of the route just so I can tell our story kind of in parallel. And then I'll let the listeners know when we rejoin back to where Margie is in the story. So I, um, like Margie said, I was climbing in a group of three with Jamie and Ryan. Um, Ryan had never climbed multi-pitch trad before. And then the other party that what or the other team that was sort of part of our friend group that day were George and Kalita and they were climbing the Hesse Ferguson route and they were really the fastest team. So by the time that Margie fell, they had, um, already topped out or they were very close to topping out. And so um, the first three pitches of the route that we climbed, the love route, went pretty fast for us. Um, And like Margie said, we were climbing as a group of three on double 70-meter ropes. And so our leader was leading with both ropes and then belaying um, both the followers up at the same time. And so we had done three rope stretcher pitches um, with those double 70s. And by about probably 1130, we're um, about probably 600 feet up. So well into the um, Englishman's route. And Jamie led the fourth pitch. And... um, Uh, On the fourth pitch, you can decide to stay left to stay on the Englishman's route or go right and rejoin the Hesse-Ferguson. And Jamie decided to go right partly because she saw um, George and Kalita over there finishing on the Hesse-Ferguson and she thought the climbing looked good over there. And that was in retrospect, really fortunate that she made that decision because that put us in perfect position to help with the rescue. And so, um, Jamie built an anchor at the top of our fourth pitch, which was actually kind of near the start of pitch, proper pitch seven of the Hesse Ferguson. And at that point it was about 12 o'clock. We were feeling, um, good, like we're making really good time. And so we stopped and had a little snack and kind of our our first indication that the tone of the day was about to change was um, as Jamie was having a snack and resting on her anchor, one of the pieces blew and it was not a big deal. It was a good three piece anchor. So we just, um, replaced it with a different piece and, um, Jamie started leading the next pitch, which would be our fifth pitch. So as Jamie's leading the next pitch, she's about halfway up. And, um, that's when I heard Margie and Travis for the first time. So I actually, I had seen, um, George and Kalita a lot but i hadn't seen margie and travis or heard heard from them up until that point so as jamie's leading um i hear margie say really clearly um i think i'm off route i'm going to down climb she yelled that down to travis and i could hear that she was pretty close below me but there was a little lip so i actually couldn't see her um so maybe five minutes later i heard the fall um, so I heard, um, I heard her say falling and then I heard pieces popping. So I thought I heard three pieces popping, but it, it might've only been two. Um, and you, you know, at this point there was nothing I could do. I was <laughs> pretty anxious, pretty nervous, just listening to this fall and knowing that, not knowing what the result was, um, so I heard her fall. I heard Travis catch her, and um, I knew she was probably conscious because I heard Travis talking to her. I heard him say, "Okay, I'm gonna lower you," and I heard this screaming and just a lot of commotion going on. So at that point. I yelled up at Jamie to build an anchor and she was about maybe two thirds of the way up her pitch and luckily had finished sort of the harder section of climbing. So she built an anchor and, um, she was able to communicate up to George and Kalita who are now on the top of Hallett, and, um, Kalita, um, immediately got a call out for rescue. And um, Ryan, who was at the blade with me, also tried to get a call out, but we weren't able to get service um, where we were at on the pitch. So after that, um, George wrapped in almost immediately. So he had one 70 meter rope, and he was able to single rope wrap all the way down to the anchor where Ryan and I were at. And, um, we kind of convened there and made a plan that Jamie would drop the, to the double 70 meter ropes. And then Jamie would belay Ryan up on the single rope that George had wrapped down on. So we got that in, going in action and, um, Brian set up set off with Jamie belaying him and then George and I started setting up a rappel to go down to Margie. At this time, um, you know, Margie had warned us that these ropes she lent us were really, really bad about getting tangled. (laughs) And so we completely clustered the ropes at this time. Um, So that felt... Nerve-wracking because it felt like we were losing precious time, um, but we did get them untangled and um, and threw them over the the edge, and that's when Margie and Travis saw our ropes and and knew that we were coming. And I was actually surprised that Margie hadn't been able to hear me um, because I had you know the whole time kind of been yelling down to her saying that that we were descending to help them. So George rappelled down first, and um, he got to Margie. So just to remind everyone, um, Margie is still at the original anchor um, that Travis had been belaying her on when she fell, um, and Mar and excuse me, Travis had descended about hundred feet below her, um, initiating self-rescue. And so, so George arrived there and, um, you know, first thing he did was an injury assessment and, um, what he found was really encouraging. Margie was alert. She hadn't seemed to have lost any consciousness. Um, her helmet was really smashed and there was actually a little bit of blood on the outside of her helmet. Um, but her head didn't, wasn't bleeding. Um, so we figured that it came from her elbow, which she mentioned earlier was bleeding. Um, she was complaining of ankle pain and she said immediately, she said, I think I have a broken wrist. Um, but there didn't appear to be any very severe, severe injuries or any obvious compound fractures. Um, so, and they had already started descending. So George decided to, um, continue descending. And he set up, um, he actually, um, took the rope that Travis was on and rigged it for a single line wrap so that Travis could continue descending about 80 feet lower down to, um, some, some really big ledges that he knew were there. Um, George had climbed the Colt Bossier, I think, Margie, how many times? Two or three times before? twice. Um, and so at that point I wrapped down to them and then we set up, um, a wrap with the double ropes. Um, and Margie said that she could wrap on her own, but we still just, we weren't sure about the severity of the head injury and we didn't think it was a good idea. Um, so for the first wrap, we actually had Margie wrap on the double ropes and then George, um, wrapped beside her on the single rope and kind of gave her a backup, tied himself to her for a backup. Um, And then I dropped the single rope, came down on the double ropes. Um, And from there, we uh, were really efficient. Um, From those ledges that Travis had stopped on, we were able to get to the ground in two more long wraps. Um, And what we did with those was, George went first, um, on the single line and looked for the next station. And then, um, uh, Travis followed him on the single line. And then I set up the double wraps and Margie and I tandem wrapped on the double ropes. And that was just really nice and streamlined because then when we got to the next station, the, um, kind of the path down was all set up for us. And so Two long wraps again, um it was really great that we had uh, the equipment we needed those two seventy meter ropes really um made us get down a lot faster and so by the time we reached the snow, it was about three o'clock, and our um I think Margie's fall occurred about one o'clock um and then there was a little bit of snow travel um to get over to the talus um, but Margie was able to put weight on her ankle and we kicked steps for her and by the time we got to the talus a medic um, from Rocky Mountain National Park met us there and did a full assessment and the medic yeah (laughs) he
1: asked me if uh, I wanted to fly out in a helicopter (laughs) or if I wanted a litter out and I didn't think I wanted any of that I definitely didn't want a helicopter um, but um, I didn't think I needed a litter. And so I walked out, um, it was really difficult cause my head hurt a lot. Um, but I thought my head would hurt worse, but bouncing around in a litter. <laughs> so, um, that's, um, I walked out and they, the Rocky mountain rescue was really, really great about getting us out, um, quickly. And, um, there were two teams mobilized, um, to take us out on a to take me out on a litter if if necessary but it wasn't necessary Mm -hmm.
0: how long did it take you to hike back out to the the parking lot
1: um I think we were back out at the lot by what 3 30 or 4 maybe it was later than that I don't know I think it was later than that yeah (laughs) I, as I said, I had a concussion at this point. I don't remember. <laughs> it, just, it took a while.
0: Did you end up going to the
1: hospital? I did. Um, and they were actually waiting for me um, at the Estes Park Health. Um, so I did an interview with some rangers um, at the base and they are at the parking lot because um, they wanted to just know exactly what had happened. And actually, when I described the rock that had broken, the, the climbing ranger like knew exactly where I was. Um, when it broke, um, and, uh, then, um, we declined the ambulance, um, but Travis drove me straight to the hospital, um, because I had taken a big fall onto my head. Um, we thought I should get a CT scan. So, um, the hospital is waiting for us, um, and showed me immediately in, um, and I got a CT scan of my neck and my head and x-rays of my elbow, ankle, and wrist, and they didn't see anything wrong except for my broken uh, pisiform, which is like a little bone, one of your little carpal bones, Um, but yeah.
0: So did you all five debrief this incident after it happened? Have you all five been back together since then?
1: Well, not. um, we have not all been back together as far as I know, but we've all talked about it um,
2: since the accident. Um, we did do a lot of debriefing over email. So each of us sort of wrote up a story and read each other's stories and wrote up lessons learned.
0: Nice. What, what were some of those lessons that were, that were
1: learned? Leslie, do you want to go first?
2: Sure. (laughs) Um, well, I had two major ones. Um, one, um, was when and how to call for help. Um, I talked to the climbing rangers afterwards, and um, they said to keep it simple when you call for help, and and less is more um, in terms of information. So the two things that they recommended providing are location on route and severity of injury. I think they had received two different phone calls one from kalita and then one from another party who was on the ground who saw the incident and it sounded like they had received some conflicting information so um when and how to call for help was one of my lessons learned and and actually since then i listened Ashley, to the when and how to call for help episode that you did and that expanded upon that a lot too um <laughs> and then my second one is practice partner rescue. I <laughs> I learned a lot about myself and um, what I will, will be able to do in a stressful situation like that and what I won't be able to do and how practice I need to be at something to execute it. For example, I had been practicing how to tie the rescue spider, um, and I had practiced it a couple times. And um, even though that wasn't needed for this situation, I definitely thought about um, the possibility of tying it, and I felt like I didn't know it well enough um, to do that. So I think I have a better understanding of how practice I would need to be at something to actually execute it in a really stressful situation where we need to be efficient.
0: And and can you tell the listeners what a rescue spider is?
2: Yes. Um, So you tie it with a cordelette and it provides a means to tandem repel with um, the person you're rescuing. And it's really nice um, because if the person you're rescuing is unconscious and not able to unweight an anchor, um, there's a munter mule tied into it that allows you to um, release their anchor without requiring them to take their weight off of it.
0: And, And what about you, Margie? What were some lessons that you learned from this incident?
1: Um, I think one, everyone pretty much knows for trad climbing, but, um, I think it's, it's a useful, um, reminder, um, to always wear a helmet, especially when trad climbing, but sport climbing, similar accidents to mine could happen. You could get flipped upside down. Um, and my helmet saved my life. Um, and, um, I'm, I cannot emphasize enough how important helmets are, even if you're really good, like this was a client, this is a five six pitch, um, and I climbed five twelve sport, um, but a rock broke and I fell, and and so even if you're really confident, you won't fall. Um, a helmet can save your life. Um, another one was um, place often, place gear often, um, even if the climbing is easy for you, for the same reason, holds break. Um, I placed as frequently as I could and that kept me from an even bigger fall. Um, I, I mean, I was only 35 feet above my last good piece of gear and I still sustained some pretty, um, you know, I I still sustained injuries from the fall. It wasn't, um, a non-issue. Um, and so, um, yeah, place as often as you can. Um I like
0: how you say I was only thirty-five feet above my last piece. That's <laughs> that's really far.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it is um it, it's a long way, but I think especially if you're on like run out five six, it's really easy to get thirty-five feet above your last good piece. It's really easy. And if a hold breaks when you're that far run out, you're gonna fall seventy five feet or seventy feet, you know, and with rope stretch it could be more. So um, I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, and then another one that, um, you know, is it's something that I've thought about, but not thought about enough is not trusting pitons or fixed gear in general. I've always backed up fixed gear, like stuck cams. Um, but pitons, I don't know why I, I just don't, didn't always, um, like place a nut to back it up or, um or equalize it with a, with a nut and a cam or anything like that. And so, um, doing something like that, if, if you're going to use a piton, um, either have some really good pro nearby or like back it up with something. Um, I, cause that piton ripped out of the wall and that was, um, the reason I fell so far. Um, and so that's another one. Um, another one is know your route well. Um, so two days before this accident, Leslie and I climbed Per Sanctuary, which is an 11A on the diamond. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard. It required us to do some snow climbing um, and, you know, use our mountaineering boots and ice tools and things to get to the base and then climb the route in our rock shows. So we hauled up all of our mountaineering gear after us climbing Per Vertical. And we planned for this a lot. Um, we knew the, the route. We knew each pitch, what the grade was, where it went um and even then we got a little bit lost on per vertical just cuz there's so much tat and stuff up there but overall we didn't have too much pr- trouble but um we knew it backwards and forwards and for Hallett, it was kind of a decision um we made the day before to climb Hallett because we were trying to optimize like the number of people we had and their skill levels and everything um and energy levels um So how it was a more last minute decision and I didn't study the route as much. Um, And I think there was also a part of me that was like, oh, it's a 5.8 and I just climbed a 5.11. Like I can route find. I've route found. I've done lots of route finding. Um, I'll be fine. Um, And how it, I didn't know until I got up there is really notoriously difficult um, to route find on. It's really hard to figure out where you're going. Um, And almost everyone I've talked to has gotten off route on Colt Bossier at some point. <laughs> um and so if I had spent a little more time really familiarizing myself with the issues people have and the route itself, I might have avoided um kind of uh, being a little lost on that pitch and um perhaps stayed where the good rock was rather than ending up perhaps in a chossier area. Um and then um the last one is the same as Leslie. It's just knowing self-rescue and wilderness first aid. Um, So not like there's, there's knowing the, the, the parts that you can execute well and having a good solid understanding, but just having a foundation in that can go a long way. Um, So I'm a wilderness first responder and Travis, my husband is a, he has a wilderness first aid certification um, and I've taken self-rescue classes in the past. And I think that helped us to kind of, to make a plan and, and not to just panic, but to decide, okay, we have to make a plan. We have to get down and this is how we're going to do it. Um, and so it kind of calmed us down to have that experience um, kind of in our, in our back pockets to pull out when we needed it. So I um, can't emphasize enough how important that is. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor and for donating
0: the Carbon Probe 280 Fast Lock and the Alligator Light Shovel to one of the Sharpen listeners. To enter to win these two safety items, head on over to Instagram, find the Sharp End podcast, like the most recent post, and tag three adventure buddies who you know would love the Sharp End podcast. You must be following the Sharp End, Mammut, and the American Alpine Club to win. I'll do the drawing on November 15th, so good luck. Thank you also to the Colorado Hour Bound School and Sunto for being contributing sponsors. The Colorado Hourbound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. Explore personal growth through authentic adventures while backpacking, rafting, climbing, and navigating in the Rocky Mountains and desert Southwest. There's more in us than we know. Start your journey at www.cobs.org. When you have your mind set on a certain goal or adventure, you want to make sure your watch can also go the distance. So with up to 120 hours of continuous exercise tracking, the Sunto 9 is built to last just like you. It is also tested tough through hundreds of hours of military grade testing and built with durability in mind. Join the American Alpine Club today for an exclusive discount on the Sunto 9. Remember, play hard and be smart.